Today, answers matter more than ever before. That's why IBM is helping businesses manage customer questions with Watson Assistant. It's conversational AI designed to work for any industry. Let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash Watson Assistant. Welcome to a special NFL draft edition of The Sporting Life. Over the next hour, former NFL scout Jim Nagy explains the most difficult part of picking the right players in the draft. I really think you make the majority of your mistakes on the person rather than the player. Watching the tape and figuring out the player is the easier part of the equation. I think the hardest part is just figuring out the human. You know, going from college to the pros where guys have more time on their hands, they have a lot more money in their pocket. Plus, NFL injury expert Stefania Bell describes the challenges that team medical staffs are facing. The medical reach for players who were not able to participate in the combine for various reasons. They did have about 40 players who were supposed to go back April 10th for a recheck, but those rechecks were canceled because of uh, the coronavirus. Also, former NFL GM Mike Tannenbaum thinks the virtual draft will have a major impact on one key aspect. I think where it gets a little bit more complicated is with trades, because with trades, you're dealing with the team below you or in front of you, and you're having multiple conversations at the same time. So I think trades will feel a little bit different this year. That's where people are probably the most uh, hung up. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Here's Jeremy Schapp. Welcome to our special NFL Draft edition of The Sporting Life. The draft, of course, is coming up Thursday night at 8 o'clock Eastern Time. You can see it on ESPN and ABC and the NFL Network. You can hear it right here on ESPN Radio. Of course, it's going to be a different draft than any of us has experienced before. For the next hour, we'll be talking about the draft with several experts. Our first guest is an old friend of mine. His name is Jim Nagy. He's the executive director of the Senior Bowl. You see him on ESPN talking about draft prospects, talking about the Combine, talking about his event, the Senior Bowl as well. It is a pleasure to welcome to the sporting life the great Jim Nagy. Jim, thank you for being with us. Yeah, Jeremy, thank you uh, for having me on. This will be fun. So this is your second year as a commentator for ESPN on all things NFL draft, but you've been in the business well, you're not quite as old as I am, but we go back to, I think, 1996 when you were working for the Packers as a public relations intern. You've had a remarkable career path. I would venture to say a unique career path uh, in the field. Would you tell our listeners a little bit about your progression? Yeah, it's it's definitely unique. Um, back in the mid-90s, you know, I grew up as a kid always wanting to scout in the NFL. Um, and back in the 90s, there wasn't really a, a foot in the door path uh, in scouting. They didn't really have scouting internships or scouting assistant positions back then. Now most teams have, you know, two, three or four of those. Um, so it's easier. So really the, the only way, you know, into the NFL uh, entry level position was through was through a PR internship. So I did that that year in Green Bay in 96. Good year to be in Green Bay. Yeah, it was a good, good year to be in Green Bay with Brett and Reggie and those guys. And a uh, very fortunate year, and uh, you know, also had the good fortune to meet your your father, uh, Mr. Dick Schaap, and uh, it was just a great year. And then, you know, I was I was really lucky. There was five future GMs on that on that Packers um, scouting staff. And uh, is that right? There were five. Yeah, it was it was Ted Thompson, John Dorsey, John Schneider, Reggie McKenzie, and Scott McQuillan. So yeah, there was five future GMs, and I was. 
uh, fortunate once again when, when John Schneider um, got his first opportunity to hire and fire a staff. Um, he made me his West Coast scout for the Redskins back in uh, 2000, I believe. So that, you know, then it's one of those things you get your, your foot in the door and you, you start rolling, you work hard. But uh, yeah, it's been, uh, it's been, it's been great. 18 years scouting. And then uh, two years ago, two summers ago, summer of 18, I transitioned into this role at the Reese's Senior Bowl. And uh, it's been awesome. It's been a, a really fun two years doing this. I still get to do what I love to do and that's evaluate players and, and uh, you know, take on a lot of other responsibilities as well, including the CSPN uh, stuff I'm doing around the draft, and uh, and it's been great. What was it like being a scout for two decades? I mean, we stayed in touch. We've been friends for a long time, and you know, I, I knew it was your dream job, but it's it's not an easy job. No, it's it's not. And, and you know, you get asked a lot when you're doing it. Oh, do you people find out what you do and they ask you if you love if you love doing it? And you have to love what you you have to love it because um, it's not easy. Again, there, there's a lot of hard professions out there, and not making, not trying to make scouting sound like you're you're curing cancer or anything else. But I mean, there's a lot of difficult jobs, but it's not glamorous. Um, you know, just because you work in the NFL, like that's, that's it's the furthest thing from glamorous. You're you're on the road, you know, 175, 200 nights a year, and you're staying in courtyards and fairfields and, and crisscrossing the country and. Um, a lot so of points. It, it's a, a lot of Marriott points. That's a that's a that's a bonus. I'm lifetime uh, titanium elite with Marriott, but uh, <laughs> uh, but no, it's you know it's one thing when you get started in the business and you're a young guy and you're on your own, but you know when you get older and you have you have a wife and kids and then it gets really hard. That's that's when there's a lot of pressure to the job. Um, but it's you know it's 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 a great occupation. You know, you stay involved in the sport that you love and, and you have input on the draft process, which again was, was my goal growing up just to help build a team. That was always what really captured me was the team building aspect more so than the coaching. People ask, why didn't I get into coaching? And just the building, building uh, the team really, really is what, what got me. So no, it was, uh, it's not easy, but it was a lot of fun. And this, the senior bowl job again was the reason I jumped at it was, I, it was an opportunity to continue to do what I what I really enjoyed, uh, but not be on the road as much. Be more, you know, be present more for my family. And uh, again, 18 years in the league, I never got to make a pick, and now I get to make like 120 picks a year. So <laughs> that, that part's been fun. It's interesting though. The league's changed so much, and there's so many younger coaches, coaches with different backgrounds um, from what it was like when you were um, getting out of school in the mid 1990s. If, if you were that guy today, instead of in say 1996, do you think coaching would be an avenue you would consider? Uh, yeah, it, maybe, maybe. I I don't think so, but it, it, it's changed a lot, Jeremy. I mean, this is. Uh, you know the whole the whole football world is is skewing a lot younger these days. Coaching's got a lot younger. I mean, when I started scouting, I was in you know twenty five, twenty six. I think was my first pro year on the road. And you go into some of these you know college buildings, and and every single coach on the staff was twenty years older than you. The younger guys on the staff would be in their forties, and the the older guys would be in their seventies. And now it's just because of what recruiting is nowadays and in social media and in doing the recruiting thing on social media. I think you know it's just really squeezed you know, the older generation of coaches out of it. And the same thing has happened with scouting. Same exact thing. Um, you know, the advent of the laptop really, really uh, squeezed a lot of older older scouts out, which is unfortunate, um, you know, because I used to love going to schools every day and showing up at a school and a couple older guys from another team would be, you know, in the film room with you watching film all day. And it was just great to pick their brains and hear stories. And um, it was that was a really fun part of it. 
And, you know, when I got out of it two years ago, I mean, here I'm in my mid forties and I was one of the older guys on the road. Um, so now it's really, it's really in twenties and thirties, uh, dominated on the scouting side. So, um, that's just, it's, it's that way across football. During the draft as a scout, when those calls are being made by the general manager, by the team president, whoever has the title and the authority at that moment, and they're, um, making a decision about a player you scouted, what, what's going through your mind? You know, Jeremy, that's that's an interesting question because it, it really varies on what team you're with. Um, so every team does it a little differently. Um, some teams have really small draft rooms where there'll be, you know, just a couple key decision makers. My time in New England, you know, very small room. It was, it was Scott Pioli, our GM, uh, Coach Belichick, Ernie Adams, who's, who was uh, Coach Belichick's kind of right-hand man. And uh, our college director, so it was really like four guys and then Mr. Kraft. And then you go to the, the flip side, the other end of the spectrum in Seattle, it was the entire scouting department. Um, when we got close to making our pick, all the coaches came in and it was very collaborative, even right up to the time you're on the clock. Um, you know, John Schneider, the GM there, did a great job of making everyone feel a part of it. And, uh, you know, he would come to you as, you know, we're getting ready to make the pick and, and ask for your final sign off on the player and things like things of that nature. So um, it, it definitely varies from team to team. But when you're with a team that, that makes you a part of it, um, it's a great way to end the process because you do, as we as we spoke about, you put so much in through the fall and, and through the, the winter and the spring to finally get the draft day. Um, it feels good to be a part of it. You know, one of the big questions, and you're down in Alabama, um, is how you assess Tua Tunga Vailoa right now, who had a remarkable career but has suffered an injury. Um, and uh, there's so many question marks, or there could be. How, how do you how do you look at him right now as a draft prospect? Well, Jeremy, you're right. He had a remarkable career living down here. Uh, when he started his career, I was still in the NFL, and, and I've, I've seen Tua play a ton of football over the years and really had a great career. Um, but this hip injury and kind of the volume of injuries, um, is the is the difficult thing to reconcile right now, and that's what that's what teams are trying to go through. Um, so you know, a lot of it right now is on everyone's medical staffs, and and this is <laughs> this is the part of the process where the medical people and the football people butt heads a lot during the pre-draft process because you you love a lot of players, and then the medical people come in and, and do their evaluations and you know fail them on their fail a good player on his physical. Um, so you have a lot of uh, heated debate in the buildings between those two staffs, but that's all it is. You're just trying to figure out figure out what the injury is and what the you know likelihood of reoccurrence with this hip, because um, that's uh, that's a pretty serious injury. It, you know, if it's just football, I think the guy's going to be a really good starter. I think most people would say that, but you know, the injury thing is real. Um, it's it's a roll of the dice and. What I've tried to do is bring it back to the, to the year uh, 1996 when I met you and your father uh, in Green Bay and bring it back to Brett Favre. He was a guy when Ron Wolf, you know, Brett was a third stringer in Atlanta that rookie year after they drafted him and didn't look like his career was going anywhere in Atlanta and Ron Wolf wants to trade for him. Well, the medical people in Green Bay tried to block the trade and uh, Ron had veto power and uh, made the trade go through. You know, because the medical people had failed Brett on his physical uh, the year he came out of Southern Miss. So, um, and obviously we see how that turned out. He was, you know, the, the game's all-time Iron Man. So it really is a it really is a, a roll of the dice for, for a team. And 
and I can see it going both ways. You know, it's, it's going to be interesting to see where he goes. That's kind of the main subplot of this draft, I would say. And I saw you tweeting the other day. I think it was after some of the stuff uh, that had happened in Houston uh, with Bill O'Brien. But imagine what the reaction would have been when Ron Wolf traded a first-round pick for Brett Favre back in, what was it, 1991. I, I think uh, that was the question you were asking. Yeah, I just love the reactionary, <laughs> the reactionary uh, tone of, of social media right now. And, and right now, Bill O'Brien, uh, he's kind of the the punching bag. Every every, it seems like everyone wants to be the first one in on on, on bashing Bill O'Brien as soon as he makes a move. But uh, you know, I guess it's uh, the Ron Wolf example and the Brett Favre example is uh, you know just shows us maybe we should wait and let these things play themselves out. I know, <laughs> I know when you. You trade uh, DeAndre Hopkins, who's one of the best players in the league, and, and some of the other moves they've made. Um, it's a lot of it's shocking to some people, but sometimes sometimes these things turn out uh, differently than we all think. Joe Burrow is going number one, uh, but he's, as we know, not the only quarterback available. Uh, how, how do you grade the quarterbacks? And there is so much emphasis, as always, more than ever, I should say, on the quarterback position. Yeah, Jeremy, I do think this is a good class, especially at the top. It's not very deep. Um, I don't think you see, you're going to see a lot of guys go on day three. Um, but up at the top, all four guys that are being talked about up there, Joe Burrow, LSU, Tua, uh, Justin Herbert from Oregon, and Jordan Love from Utah State, all four of those guys, you know, in the right situation can be really, really good NFL quarterbacks. And I would, I would throw Jake Fromm in there. I'm a big believer in Jake Fromm and, and Jalen Hurts. Um, has made a, a really nice rise through this process. So it's really good at the top. Usually there's a couple guys in every class that I feel like, you know, just going back to my time in scouting, I felt like we're really inflated and overdrafted. And I don't think that's the case with any of these guys. I think all of them um, have a ton of talent and can be high-level starters, you know, in the right situation. It's such a dependent position. If Joe goes to Cincinnati and they don't surround him with a lot of, a lot of good pieces, um, we've seen going back over time, David Carr and, mm-hmm. and Joey Harrington and players that ended up in really bad situations, um, you know, they can get shell-shocked early and never recover. So I just hope that, uh, you know, all these guys land in a situation where they're surrounded and they have a chance to be successful. We're speaking with ESPN draft analyst Jim Nagy. This is our Sporting Life NFL Draft Special, the draft coming up Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And you mentioned Jordan Love from Utah State. And I noticed again on your Twitter feed this week, um, you, you think there might be some misdirection out there, some people claiming, or at least one person out there claiming that I, he shouldn't even get drafted. How much subterfuge is there when we're looking at public comments from people in the league about where players might go? How much, how much of it is, um, posturing? Yeah, that's the, the the funny thing now that I'm not out of the league. Um, you know, all the misinformation and smoke screens that, you know, that people talk about. When I was in the NFL and, and just knowing the guys I've worked with, we didn't really pay attention to it. So I don't know who it's really affecting. <laughs> I don't know why all this stuff gets out because I, I really don't think the guys in the NFL pay, pay too much attention to what's being talked about, uh, you know, publicly in the media. But there is a lot of crazy stuff that comes out this time of year. There really is. Um, and with Jordan Love, people saying he's not going to get drafted, that's, that's crazy talk to me. I mean, the kid, you, 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 I mean, he's a little polarizing because his junior tape and senior tape, I'm sorry, his sophomore tape and his junior tape is so different, um, you know, especially numbers-wise. But, but uh, it's easily explainable when you look at the, the background of the, of the circumstances and, you know, losing a lot of players and, and the coaching change and, and whatnot. But there's going to be guys – 
arguing both sides. He would he would probably be the, the most fun guy in his draft to be in a draft room, uh, just to hear the debates and the conversations about him. Because um, I've talked to a lot of guys I respect in the league, and and there, there's a little bit of variance, but no one sees the guy like outside of the late first round, early second round. It's just you know how how early you would want to take him because there are those concerns. But yeah, this this time of year is crazy with some of the stuff that gets out. These these two weeks leading up to the draft, you almost have to. Uh, Ignore most everything you hear, Jim. When you were when you were a scout and you were part of the decision making process for teams about who to draft, and um, maybe one day you will be again. Um, what do you listen to? Do you listen to your heart? Do you listen to your head? It's obviously got to be some combination of those factors. But what are the things that really matter for you when you're making one of those decisions that can be so consequential for the future of a team? And for the player, yeah, you know, I think there is a there is a gut instinct there, there is an intuition there when it comes to player evaluation. Um, but I just feel like it, you got to go back to the work that you put in, and that's why the fall is so important because you're out at the schools and and I've probably told you this privately before, Jeremy, that you know teams I've been with that have made mistakes on players or you know um, you know that players just not pan out. It, it's it's a lot more to do with the person than the player. Um, the easier part is, is watching the tape and figuring that out. The harder part is, is really figuring out the person because you don't really have a lot of time with these players. It, even you talk about the pre-draft process, January, February, March, April, and the lead-up, all-star games combine. It really, you know, per player, you don't get that much time to, to, to figure out million, a million-dollar investment. Um, and with these quarterbacks, $25, $30 million investment. So um, you really got to rely on those people that have spent time with these, these kids, you know, throughout their lives, going back to high school or youth sports and into college. Um, those are the people that know them. And that's why the relationships are so important um, from a scouting perspective. Uh, that's why you have to go into these schools and, 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 and really develop those relationships because you have to get the real scoop. You have to, you have to get, uh, you have to get good information because that's what you really have to rely on is the people that know them best because you just don't get a chance to, to know them like you should before you make such a, such a consequential, consequential decision on these guys. Um, so you do, you got to go, you got to go with your gut. You got to go with the information and you just got to keep asking questions through the process. You never, you can never feel like you really know the player. I mean, we, I think the, the teams I worked for that did it best were, you know, we worked that thing all the way up um, to draft day. You know, we were always making calls and following up and, trying to reach out to as many people as we could. Well, Jim, it's always a pleasure. Uh, before we let you go, uh, we're going to have Mike Tannenbaum on later as well, and I'm going to ask him the same question. Is there is there one guy in the draft that you have your eye on uh, that maybe other people aren't looking at the same way? Uh, you know, there, there's a couple from the Senior Bowl that, you know, there's some guys that come down here that just really pop out and a guy to me that I think he's probably going to go in the second round somewhere in that range uh you know Mel didn't have him in his second round I got after Mel the other day about that but uh, <laughs> is, is, is Michigan linebacker Josh Uche and Josh is a guy that I felt like was the second best defensive player down here in Mobile at the Senior Bowl behind South Carolina's Javon Kinlaw you know Javon's going to be a you know probably going to be a top 12 13 pick and uh you know Josh got buried a little bit at Michigan he was behind some good players there's not many linebackers that can cover and affect the quarterback, and, and Josh can really do that. So, uh, you know, just looking at, looking at guys outside the first round that not everyone's talking about right now, 
I would probably say Josh Uche from Michigan. Jim Nagy, one of the smartest guys in football, working this week as he did last year for ESPN as a draft analyst. He is the senior, he's the executive director of the Senior Bowl, the Reese's Senior Bowl, as he reminds me, and spent two decades in the NFL as a scout. Jim, it is always a pleasure. Thanks so much for having joined us. Yeah, Jeremy, thanks for having me on. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. And it is a pleasure now to be joined by our old friend and colleague at ESPN senior writer, our injury analyst for the last 12 years. You see her all the time on SportsCenter, the fantasy show, Fantasy Football Now. She also is the co-host of ESPN Audio's podcast, Fantasy Focus Football. That is a lot of alliteration. <laughs> Stefania Bell joins us now. Stefania, thank you for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me, Jeremy. So so how often right now at this moment in time, uh, with the draft just, you know, a few days away, are you talking about one Tua Tunga Vailoa? It's pretty much become a daily thing for me. I'm always uh, checking up to see if there are any latest updates. But, of course, since... Um since I spoke to his two surgeons, I've been talking about him quite a bit. So what, what, you know, what should we know at this point about him uh, as the draft approaches? I think it's important to know why his doctors feel as confident as they do, because I'm sure there are people who are skeptical uh, saying, well, they're his doctors. Naturally, they're going to say these things. But um, actually, that's why it was important for me to have a call with them and, and talk in detail about what gives them so much confidence. If, if you go back to when uh, Tua injured his hip last fall, he had that hip fracture and dislocation. One of the key things is that his hip was reduced or put back into position before he left the stadium. And Dr. Chip Rout, who is the surgeon in Houston that did Tua's surgery, said that uh, they see an association with quick reduction uh, and decreased risk of what's called avascular necrosis. That's the thing that everybody worries about with this type of injury where there can be reduced uh, blood flow to the hip as a result of damage to the blood supply during a dislocation. So the fact that it was reduced by team physician Dr. Lyle Kane at the stadium led to a better prognosis overall. But no guarantee. After the surgery, and again, the surgery was performed by Dr. Rout, who specializes in pelvic and hip trauma and repair. So to him, to his injury was very straightforward, not a big deal, whereas it could have been a far more complex surgery for somebody who isn't doing that all the time. He felt like there was a good repair. They saw everything they wanted along the way in terms of healing, both fracture healing and the health of the joint. There's no evidence of cartilage damage. So all of these things, when you're three to four months out from the original surgery, start to paint a better picture of the health of the hip going forward. And I think that's really, for people who are concerned, not just about how he looks on video, but what might it mean in terms of his ability for that hip to be healthy, all those factors matter. We're speaking with ESPN injury analyst Stefania Bell about Tua Tunga-Vailoa, the Alabama quarterback who's expected to be among the top picks in Thursday night's NFL draft, but some lingering questions about um, his health and his recovery from surgery. Oh, 
What, what can you tell us, Stefania, about others who've had the same injury and their uh, rehabilitations? You know, it's not that common of an injury, so we don't have a lot of comps to go by. And it's, it's actually interesting because C.J. Mosley, who also played for Alabama and then went on to a career in the NFL, suffered a hip dislocation as well. Now, he did not require surgery, as I understand it, um, but still the rehab was there. Uh, the concern about post-dislocation issues and the worry about whether he'd ever um, be able to make it back. Well, he obviously went on to be drafted in the NFL and play at a high level. So uh, it's a pretty unusual injury. The fact that it happened to another Alabama player in the not-so-distant past is somewhat remarkable. But both times, it was Dr. Lyle Kane who reduced that athlete's hip on the field and probably helped them to uh, a better outcome overall. So, you know, the, the other thing that's really specific to this type of injury is it's not what you think in terms of rehab. It is really about resting the hip early on because you have to protect the joint. You can't put too much weight through it while it's healing. And Dr. Rout was quick to point out to me that one of the things Tua did really well, and it's very hard for an athlete, especially one who wants to get back and prove to teams that he's healthy, the first six weeks, he had to do almost nothing, really protect the hip, not put weight through it. And even until they had that three-month mark where they were looking at the health of the joint, they were comfortable that he could progress his weight-bearing, he was very limited in terms of the type of activity he could do. So I think when you see these videos that he's put out, his workout videos uh, showing his dropbacks, his agility, his ability to step onto that right hip and throw across his body, which requires rotation, his functional strength and how he looks is very encouraging, especially when you consider that he couldn't do much uh, for over a month after the original surgery. Mm. It looks like, uh, if I'm reading this correctly, Mel Kuyper has has him in his mock draft at this point, uh, going sixth to the Chargers, to Atunga Vailoa, the great gifted quarterback from Alabama. What are, what are the other big injuries, the other players who suffered injuries that that you're really keeping an eye on heading into the draft right now, Stefania? You know, there's who is really the biggest name when it comes to injury um, issues, specific injuries. Most of the other uh, athletes that folks are talking about, it's really just a question of uh, can they stay healthy? There are some minor things, but the medical rechecks, as we typically expect them uh, to be significant, you know, for players who were uh, not able to participate at the combine for various reasons, we didn't have that much that was substantial this year. Now, they did have about 40 players who were supposed to go back April 10th for a recheck, but as you know, those rechecks were canceled um, because of uh, the coronavirus pandemic situation. What they have done um, and really, it's a credit to uh, the Professional Football Athletic Trainer Society because they've helped coordinate uh, video through players and their agents of them working out, uh, demonstrating, if you will, that they are past whatever concern it might have been. So, for example, a hamstring strain that might have prevented someone from running the 40 at the combine. Uh, typically, you'd want to see that in person. They couldn't do that this year, but the hope is that the videos. Uh, demonstrate to the teams who are curious that this player is back and able to perform uh, as he, as he was pre-injury. So uh, right now, I think a lot of the, the folks I've talked to are getting a lot of their questions answered 
by seeing this documentation that's been uploaded to a central location where teams have the ability to view it before the draft. Mm. All kinds of adjustments obviously being made in this unique situation. Stefania Bell is ESPN's injury analyst and has been for 12 years. She will be everywhere for the next few days as the draft approaches and during. Stefania, thanks so much for taking some time out uh, to talk with us here on The Sporting Life. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. The draft coming up Thursday, Friday, Saturday on ESPN, ABC, NFL Network. You can hear it here, too, on ESPN Radio. And it is a pleasure to welcome back to the show one of our favorite and most frequent guests, man who used to run the Jets and the Dolphins, Mike Tannenbaum. Mike, thank you for being with us. It's good to be with you, Jeremy, and hope you and your family are safe and uh uh, doing as well as possible. Thank you, sir. Same, same for you and your family. Um, you know, this is going to be obviously very different. It is in, uh, I guess we're calling it a virtual draft. Uh, you know, the, there's, there's no central meeting place. Uh, picks are being made from the homes, I guess, of executives. I, I imagine some are probably going to the office too. I, I don't know the exact details. What, what are your, what are you hearing from your former colleagues and counterparts about how all of this is going to work and what concerns they might have? Yeah, I think everyone feels like within reason they'll be able to make the picks. I think where it gets a little bit more complicated is with trades because with trades, you know, typically, Jeremy, you're you're dealing with the team below you or in front of you, and you're having multiple conversations at the same time. So I think to the extent that trades will feel a little bit different this year, I think that's where people are probably the most uh, hung up. What about the technology? I mean, there must be concerns, you know, seems like whenever you expect something to work a certain way, and especially when you're doing it the first time, there are going to be glitches and there could be major consequences, right? If if the technology, whatever, the cell phones aren't working right or the communication between the league and the teams, Goodell, who I guess will be at home in suburban New York. I, I mean, there must be some uh, trepidations out there, I would imagine. You know, there certainly is. And, and that's why there's going to be uh, multiple layers here, Jeremy, in terms of they're going to have a phone as well as video conferencing. So and I also think what you're hearing from the league, the league is understandably usually fastidious when it comes to rules and deadlines, but I think they're going to have a lot more just common sense in terms of if someone, if a line drops or if the video conferencing goes out for whatever reason that they'll, they'll allow a team to make a pick because Typically, if you don't make your pick within the allotted time, then the next team can jump in front of you. But no, nobody wants to see that happen this year, especially just given the fact that a lot of these decision makers will be from their homes and not, you know, not all IT situations are created the same. We're speaking with Mike Tannenbaum. He is the former executive vice president of football operations for the Dolphins, general manager of the New York Jets, and now an ESPN commentator. And I'm sure you're talking again to a lot of uh, executives around the league, you know, in, in just um, general terms, Mike, how is this going to, how is this going to work? I mean, you said they're going to have phone lines, obviously they're going to have video, but you know, if you're the guy um, making the decision in that moment, you got to make the pick and you've got scouts and you've got coaches. And I mean, I know everybody has a different kind of draft room. How, how are they going to manage all just the communications when they're making those calls? Yeah, I think what, we're, what you're going to see a lot of this year, and, and candidly, a lot of this was done, you know, even in, in normal times. Everything will be prepackaged, which is, 
you you have a pretty good sense to say, hey, if we, if we have these four players on the board and we don't make a trade, let's decide ahead of time. Here are the four we're going to take in exactly what order. So just in case something happens, and again, you know, we lose a line, the video conferencing goes out. We will we will have our decisions literally prepackaged, and then if something really really weird would happen and those four players are gone for whatever reason, you know, then ultimately the general manager just has to pull the trigger and, you know, as the steward of the franchise, do what's best. But I think you'll, you'll see. You know, you'll have teams say, hey, we're going to go with these four guys, these five guys in this order. Mm. I, I think there are probably a lot of people out there who are going to be watching the draft who, who are in some, at some part of them, you know, for the amusement factor, are hoping to see some kind of a glitch. <laughs> when you're watching, are you expecting to see something like that happen? I, I think when it's all said and done, something will happen somewhere along the lines that – you know, two teams will call in the same player or, it, I mean, look, if, if if it all goes perfect, then let, let's tip our hat to the league and more, people, more importantly to the great IT people. But at some point, you know, some, some player may get a call from two teams. It just seems like over the course of three days and seven rounds, you know, something could happen. I have to say, Mike, many, many years ago, I was the host of a draft, um, not on ESPN. Uh, it was on the internet. I, it was the initial Israel baseball league draft. I think it was the only Israel baseball league draft. And Dan Duquette was in charge of the league and we were doing it, I think, from Cardozo Law School in downtown New York. And it was all done, uh, you know, over the internet and he drafted for all the teams, which is a different situation. Uh, um, I don't really know what I was saying other than I wanted to bring up the old Israel Baseball League virtual draft. It has been done before, but it was a less complicated situation and, dare I say, uh, less consequential. Uh, we had Jim Nagy on the show earlier, and he was saying that he thinks this is a great draft. Um, and he also said that he thinks you can get players in the second and third round. It's a special draft in the sense that the the separation between the players who are going to be available in the second and the third rounds is not that great from the players available in the first round. How do you feel about that assessment? I think that's true at certain positions. I think it falls off quickly at corner, for example. I think it falls off quickly at uh, pass rush. But as it relates to, let's say, receiver or running back, I think that's pretty much true. So um, I think we're going to see a lot of strategy. I think we're going to see a lot of really, really good receivers go um, you know, in the second, third round, guys that could come in and play. And I think that's why you go back to veteran free agency, Jeremy, and we saw a lot of receivers, you know, not get what they wanted because teams are looking at this year's receivers say, like, we, we could help ourselves, you know, later on. When you were, you know, making these calls yourself, Mike, and you were assessing talent at the receiver position, uh, you know, uh, there are obvious factors that weigh into any kind of decision like that. But what were the things that were most important to you? Well, I think it came down to really just a couple of fundamental things, uh, talent and character. And one steps before, meaning your baseline talent, like how good of a player are you? And then the character sets the ceiling, meaning how hard are you going to work? Will you avail yourself to resources to make yourself the best player possible? And the more you could have a high floor and a high ceiling, that was out, you know, obviously the best case scenario. But I think this year what we're going to see in particular is I believe we're going to see a lot of high floor players, meaning players that aren't risky, players that should, for whatever reason, have at least a solid B career, come from big schools, 
um, and you don't have to project a lot because not being able to get your hands on these players as much as you typically can, I think is going to lead to a little bit more conservative sort of decision-making. So it really benefits uh, those players who are on national TV every week playing at big programs is what you're saying. And the small school guys, um, this this is not a good situation for them. Correct. And I think for players like Tua, who have an unusual uh, situation with their injury and doctors not being able to examine the player, I think it's going to hurt him in particular. Mm. Even with all the other ways that you can assess that, and, and all the other ways they're trying, if if they can't have their own doctors, it, it's just another question mark that doesn't get answered, and so it affects it. That, I mean, that all makes sense. Yeah, and and, and again, because you're, you're dealing with such consequential decision-making um, in terms of taking that player in the top five, I think this year that injury in particular is going to be hard to draft that player so high. We're speaking with Mike Tannenbaum, formerly the general manager of the Jets and the head of football operations for the Miami Dolphins. More than two decades in the NFL, now an ESPN commentator as the draft approaches Thursday night. And we talked about this earlier in the show as well, Mike, the the talent versus character equation. And, and talent is much easier to assess, obviously. When you talk about character and when you talk about adaptability, um, to the situations one faces as a professional athlete in the team environment, um, you know, everything else. Uh, how, how, do, how do you come to decisions as an executive that you feel comfortable with assessing those things when, you know, it, so much of it has to be guesswork? Yeah, um, I think character ultimately in life, Jeremy, comes down to how you treat people that can't help you. Hmm. How do you treat the waiter, the waitress, the bus driver, the cab driver? And when you're with a team, you work really, really hard to try to figure that out. So that's the part that um, you spend a lot of time with. You, you rely on your area scouts. I was in an interesting situation going back to 2016 where Laramie Tunsil had a video that came out shortly before the draft. He had obviously hit a bump in the road. Right. And we, we, we relied on his character from uh, his area, the, the area scouts report. It was very good. And he was a good person that had made a mistake. We drafted him. He was the best player talent-wise. Re- refresh my memory, Mike. I-, I remember vaguely a Tunsil video. What was it? So he was smoking uh, with a gas mask on, and um, it just looked awful. At the time, the optics w- w- was terrible, and um, you know a lot of teams were scared away to draft the player, even though he was he was the best player on our board. He was the best player on many teams' boards, and um it became a great opportunity for us. He fell all the way to 13, and we got literally the best player on the board at 13 without making a trade. Who's the guy out there this year that, um, as an evaluator of football talent, you're excited about who falls into kind of the sleeper category? Well, I don't know if he's a sleeper anymore, but uh, Isaiah Simmons, because, you know, Jeremy, we talk a lot about how there's, like, positionless players now on offense, someone like Debo Samuel or even Tyree Kill, Christian McCaffrey to a certain extent, those are positionless players on the offensive side of the ball. I think Isaiah Simmons could be that on defense. He's such a good athlete. He can move around so much. Um, I think he's a guy that really could play um, a number of positions, so I can't wait to see what he looks like at the next level. Well, what, where does he end up spending most of his time lining up, though, the, the Isaiah Simmons, the great player out of Clemson? I think he'll start off probably at, at, at safety, but athletically he could do so much. He could walk out and cover receivers man-to-man. He can blitz. He can play in the box. Um, 
there's there's very few people like him, if at all. And uh, he's he's going to be a lot of fun to watch. And I know, you know, just being around some really creative defensive coaches, people like ESPN's Rex Ryan or Eric Mangini, every day, every week, that game plan could look a little bit different. And uh, I, I'm really uh, I'm really excited to see what he could do as a pro player. Well, it's going to be an interesting draft in many respects. Mike, we always appreciate your insights here on the show. Thanks for taking the time for us. Okay, thanks so much for having me. Mike Tannenbaum, the former NFL executive and current ESPN commentator. The NFL draft, of course, coming up. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, you can see it on ESPN, ABC, and the NFL Network, a joint broadcast this time for the first time. You can also hear it on ESPN Radio. Thank you for joining us here in the Sporting Life for our NFL Draft Special. Thanks as well to our guests, Jim Nagy, Stefania Bell, and Mike Tannenbaum. And as always, to our intrepid producer, Dan Zakczewski.